Any opinions expressed in this podcast are those held by the speaker based on industry experience and are not representative of any organisation or profession, nor should be considered as such. This is Nursing Australia, proudly brought to you by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association. Welcome to this very special instalment of Nursing Australia. Let's just step inside a courtroom for a moment. Now, when you embark on a healthcare career or you're considering a healthcare career, you may spend a couple of moments studying, pondering, considering law and ethics. It's not well received, nor a popular subject. But wait, before you flick this podcast off and glaze over and tune out, step back in your mind a moment. Or for those who are studying, fast forward. Picture yourself walking into that hospital ward your first day, walking into that clinic, that aged care facility, stepping behind the wheel of that community nursing car, stepping inside cosmetic injecting clinic. All of a sudden you're confronted with policy, scope, practice standards, and every year you get online and you fill out a bunch of questions so the regulator, the registration authority can deem whether or not you're suitable to practice and you agree to abide by a series of standards and practice appropriately. All of us at some point have spent a moment pondering what happens if a mistake causes a catastrophic outcome for a patient? Perhaps it's litigation. Perhaps it's a coronial inquiry. Perhaps it's your time to sit there in front of a courtroom and explain what exactly happened. Can you lose your registration to practice? Why do we have indemnity insurance? Can your life outside of the workplace, so your social life, your family life, your interactions, can they impact your career as a registered health professional in Australia? You are listening to a very special edition of Nursing Australia. This is Nursing and the Law, How to Protect Yourself with me, your host, Matthew St. Ledger, and very special guest, nurse and lawyer, Nikki Eastwood. Nikki joins us to help navigate the legal landscape in Australian healthcare. The producer of this episode is Leith Alexander, and audio is courtesy of Inside Edition and CBS Interactive. To kick things off, firstly, Nikki, welcome to Nursing Australia podcast. As I mentioned in the intro, Nikki is a lawyer and a nurse who resides in Victoria. We are having a discussion, I guess, about nursing and the law, right, which for most of us is is probably a single unit that you might do in your degree, primarily around ethics, and then we sort of move on with it, perhaps. And then you, by the time you become a nurse, you're thrust into a world of, of conduct and law and, and responsibility, et cetera, and so forth. I just wanted to start this episode, if we could shift to America, where a nurse has been charged and found guilty of of reckless homicide, so causing the death of a patient subsequently to a uh, medication error. And we'll play a, a bit of the audio now. Nurse Redonda Vaught was charged with reckless homicide in the death of 75 year old Chaylene Murphy at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. She was supposed to give her patient a mild sedative, but instead administered the powerful paralyzing agent Vecuronium, which came with this label, Morning Paralyzing Agent. In audio played at the trial, Nurse Vaught admitted to an investigator that she had been distracted. The defendant violated everything that she had ever learned. So to kick things off, thoughts on that case in America, and to to give you a little bit of context, Across a lot of social media channels in Australia, there has been quite a lot of chatter amongst nurses and doctors or healthcare professionals in Australia, rightly perhaps uh, perturbed or alarmed that they would hear something like this, given the chance of of precedence. Could you provide us some reassurance, perhaps, or give your thoughts? 
Sure. So firstly, thanks so much for having me and for the opportunity to share a bit of my experience and more so my opinions on how the system works and how these things happen. You probably hit the nail on the head, Matthew, when you say as a nurse, when you're studying, you have maybe five minutes of education about what your legal obligations might be. And I don't think, you know, you should underestimate how ethically your practice is also impacted by what your obligations are as a nurse. I think this is a really interesting case that's come up in the United States. And I think it's really important to go back to those core principles of what's reasonable. At what stage was this a mistake? At what stage did this move past being a mistake and became something that met the threshold for criminal conduct? Just on that point, and that that seems to be those that are supporting the nurse, and certainly the feedback within the nursing community in Australia and New Zealand as well, is, Mm. is exactly that this person's made a mistake, a medication mistake. And we know that overwhelmingly that's one of the most common errors that we would all face at some stage in our profession. Yes. And I don't think you should underestimate the fact that this could happen in a number of different scenarios, whether it's medication, whether it's clinical practice, whether something comes up that has a catastrophic outcome. So it's not beyond the realms of possibility that at any stage a coroner might look at somebody's practice, somebody's conduct, somebody's performance and say, this has gone beyond what we would expect as reasonable practice or what we would consider the foundations of a mistake. And I think there are so many opportunities here that this nurse had. And please don't think for a minute that I... I'm supporting the fact that this person's been convicted. What you have to stop and think about is how many steps are reasonable in what you are doing? And I think that brings you back to what things are in place in your workplace, in the profession, in our regulated body to protect you. And how do you, on a daily basis, comply with those obligations? In this scenario, this poor woman has admitted on the face of it straight up, I've made a mistake, I was complacent, I was distracted, all of these things happened and that led to this catastrophic outcome. Mm -hmm. One would think the fact that she has to live with that and those repercussions would be punishment enough. The fact that this has gone through a whole criminal proceeding and that there was a recommendation by the coroner for this woman to be criminally tried, that's extraordinary. It really is. And it's not Mm. something that we see on a day-to-day basis here in Australia, but there are comparative matters that I have seen. There was a, a recent midwifery matter, and that has gone through a criminal process here in Australia as well. I think what we need to do as nurses is to take a step back in every aspect of your practice, and you need to reflect on what it is that you're doing and how you're doing it. I mean, when I trained, there was six rights of medication administration. Now there's seven plus four additional. You know, how do you tick all of those boxes all of the time and make sure that you are practising safely? So talk about that. Uh, I mean, what is reasonable? Because it's kind of a generic legal term, right, that reasonable according to 
who? So in the context of a medication area. Okay. So here at your base level in Australia, for instance, what's reasonable is going to be that you complied with all of your obligations. Now, they might start with your local policies and procedures that are in your hospital, okay? They might be the recognised standards for practice, the things that are expected of you by your peers. Once you start getting to a level of criminality, you have to think about the thresholds to reach that criminal conviction stage. So, for instance, in this matter that you've spoken about in the American judicial system, you know, their threshold is extremely high to reach. And again, at a local level here, for instance, with a matter that might proceed through the regulatory body, so you're talking about APRA, the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, and that's not a criminal process. It's not meant to be punitive, and I'm just suggesting that this is the most common form of action that you would see here in Australia unless it met a criminal burden. Sure. If you can say what you have done is reasonable in what it was that was expected of you, you understand what your area of competence is, that you have all of the checks and balances in place. That's what's reasonable. The threshold is a reasonable belief that what it is that you have done has posed a serious risk to patients. Okay, so that's just saying the board Mm -hmm. find you have practised in a way that did not meet those expectations. Mm -hmm. That's the threshold you're looking at there. But what's reasonable in your day-to-day practice is when you can demonstrate that you did all of the things that have been put in place to protect you and protect Mm -hmm. those patients from those errors. Things will still happen. They always will. Calculations, distractions, complacency like we've seen. And this is harsh But if you go back to how many different steps past that point of mistake there is, what was reasonable for this person to do? And I can't comment on what the local protections were. We can talk speculatively, though. Arguably, there were a number of alerts for this nurse to Mm. stop and think, gosh, there's a lot going on everywhere else. I might not do this right now because, you know, I haven't got my head 100% in the game. Mm -hmm. I think that's what comes through probably a whole heap for me here is this person was trying to do so much that it was unreasonable for Mm. her to continue on with that task if she didn't have it confidently in her head that what she was doing was safe. And that's hard because I think we all face that challenge all of the time. You've got to get Mm -hmm. your patients moving. They've got to be discharged. Mm. Take a moment, I guess. Take a moment. And I think more than ever, you'd be acutely aware that workforce pressures on the nursing workforce in Australia is is massive. I guess in that light, and if we were to bring it back Mm. to our shores, Mm. as a nurse, use me as an example, I guess, hypothetically, what would I have to do? What what would be a common example? And Mm. then if it made it to the regulatory body, so in the case of Australia, APRA, what would that process look like for me? Your normal run of the mill is there might be a hospital investigation or a mandatory notification to APRA about the performance. It might have come directly from a patient, for instance. It might be a complaint to the Health Complaints Commissioner who would then, depending on your state and your entity, might come through the OHO or, you know, any one of those bodies. And then if the notification is received through APRA, then they 
the notification goes through an assessment process. It's looked at. At that stage, there's some legislative requirements that need to be met as well. Mm -hmm. Then that process would proceed to letting the practitioner or the nurse let them know that there's been a notification received. They may or may not ask for a response at that stage. You may or may not receive some information about the actual notification. You might receive the notification itself. And that's really confronting. It's really important at that stage to be able to reflect and say, was what I was doing at that time reasonable? Was that within the realms of what would be expected of me mm. by another nurse with the same level of competence and experience? And what you've got to remember is the boards are made up of your peers and community members. What what do you think are some common misconceptions around that? There's that sort of old nursing adage or uh, I don't know where it, where it's come from, the my mythical crypts of, of mm. nursing where oh, you can't do this or do that because you you'll lose your licence yes. or X, oh, Y, yes. Z. That's a really common story, exactly. right? And it's all, you know, not criticising it at all, but is it appropriate to say could be potentially overused to sort of, you know? Yes, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, you, you know, the board's going to strike you off. We hear that all the time. So, yeah. you know, after you get through an assessment process and if you get to the stage of investigation or if it's a more serious matter and there is potentially immediate action that needs to be considered, mm. there are different outcomes for different stages. Your most run-of-the-mill issues are going to go through a process over a period of time. It's not an immediate outcome. People want to know what's going to happen straight away. At a local level, the board's jurisdiction provides for what they can and can't do. And more often than not, it is a process of bringing that practitioner up to speed. It's not meant to be punitive. They don't have the power to punish people. That's not what they do. I think that's the cl the clincher too. Correct. Right? And it's a myth. That's the misconception. It's not that's punitive. APRA right. is not there to to have you over the ringer and and take your career right. from you. No. And that's and there are two very separate entities there as well. So you've got APRA who works with the boards. So mm -hmm. the Nursing and Midwifery Board of Australia, APRA. You know, mm -hmm. the information together, and they provide that to the board to be able to make a decision. So it's really important when you are faced with these processes that you either engage with your professional indemnity insurer, with the union, the legal representative, with somebody who's familiar with that process. Because as nurses, the first thing we want to do is give information and we mm -hmm. want to fix it. And you have to take that step back and really reflect on what it is that's happened and be able to put your best foot forward, mm. give as much information with accuracy as you possibly can. And the people that are best informed to do that for you are people who are familiar with the process. So that mm. would usually be your union or an insurer or a legal representative with experience in that area. So getting that assistance early on in the piece can avoid a whole trail of events down the track. The board would look at the matter and they are governed by the legislation again, so that's for health practitioner national law. So that gives the framework of what can be done in certain circumstances. So if the board form a reasonable belief that what it is you've done poses a serious risk to patients, that would be something that's considered under an immediate action jurisdiction. So if you pose a serious risk with what it is that's being alleged of you, 
then there is going to be some immediate repercussions to that. If it is your performance or your conduct has not met the standards expected Mm -hmm. of someone in your profession of an equal level of experience or qualifications, then there's other sets of impositions that could be placed on your registration that might be conditions, that might be, Mm -hmm. you know, a caution, there might be some education, that sort of thing. And you're looking at people who automatically assume, am I going to be struck off? That's not even a consideration at the very early stages. You need to, again, if we talk about thresholds, you need to get to a very high threshold before the board would say, okay, Mm -hmm. from what we can see is there are multiple levels of unprofessional conduct and that meets the threshold to be referred to the tribunal. And then the tribunal would need to look at all of the evidence and all of the submissions and then make a decision because the board can't actually make that decision. They need to refer it on. And mm-hmm. at that stage, you would be looking at what outcomes are available at a tribunal level. That might be a period of cancellation, suspension at the very worst. But more often than not, these are circumstances where unless there's you know, really serious conduct or performance concerns, that they would fall in line with what the board would usually do. Historically, and there has been in the last 12, 18 months, outcomes related to the midwives, I think one one midwife in particular Mm -hmm. who worked at Jerrawarra Health Services, where quite an extensive cancellation or prohibition on her returning to practice was imposed by a tribunal. And that was related specifically to poor performance practices. And you are looking at the absolute extreme of the extreme when you Mm. get to that stage. So at a local level, it is about the board, and that's not often criminal conduct. If it's criminal conduct, that runs a little bit differently, and there's provisions to deal with that criminal conduct as well. If I could just shift kilter a little bit, most nurses would be familiar with the concept of professional indemnity insurance and whether or not most commonly you'd get that from a union membership. But increasingly, certainly people are buying it independently. While most people would understand the basics of of professional indemnity and what it's for, Mm. I guess I'd be interested for your insights of when it's applied or when it's utilised, when somebody is insured, when mm-hmm. they pull the lever and access that insurance in Australia, yeah. what, what's the most common things you'd see in a nursing context? So, and I think that leads into probably quite clearly criminal conduct as opposed to practice-related or general day-to-day working type issues. So your professional indemnity insurer will always be able to assist you with an investigation process or a notification process through APRA. You may not be able to access that insurance for any criminal conducts that more often than not, there's a clause that would potentially exclude you from cover if it was criminal conduct or, you know, if it was not related to specifically to your practice as a nurse, for instance. Mm -hmm. So it is very important that you have a look at what the cover includes and you be very clear in your communication with your insurer in the very first instance and not being reluctant to do that because it might impact on how your insurance is provided to you in the future. I think the first and foremost thing to always remember is that they are there to assist you and to be able to get the best outcome for you that is available. Mm -hmm. 
so professional indemnity insurance, can that cover you outside of work? So, I mean, I guess when I think of professional indemnity insurance, the most obvious thing I think is, well, you know, made a, say, a clinical error at work or perhaps I was not appropriately conducting myself or there was, you know, some catastrophic incident or whatever that occurred at work. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious about the intersect when you're a nurse in Australia, whether that be registered and enrolled or a nurse practitioner, a midwife, mm-hmm. when you have your indemnity insurance, can it be applied outside of work hours? You would usually be covered under the Good Samaritans Act for any right. any assistance you provide at the street side, for instance. Okay. So that's, you know, there are provisions under the legislation to protect you for that. All right. So I guess uh, it might hop back to the original theme of the example we used out of the States. But we've talked about performance practice errors you might make as a nurse practicing in Australia. I want to circle back slightly and talk about criminal conduct or criminal matters. What happens if a nurse in Australia is criminally charged? What does that look like? Yeah, and I think this is really important to cover off because I think people don't really understand the gravity of which a criminal charge could affect the way that you practice. And it's not only limited to whether or not that conduct happened within your practice, it is also inclusive of how you conduct yourself outside of practice. So Mm -hmm. if we go right back to the principles that we discussed right at the beginning, you are held to the level of a professional and with that comes obligations. But if we consider criminal conduct in your practice, so there was a very widely publicised matter of a nurse here in Melbourne who had set up video cameras and recorded his colleagues while they were changing in the change rooms, he'd also mm-hmm. taken images of anaesthetised patients and, and the likes. That was a very public matter, and that was criminal conduct. Now, he used his position as a nurse to access those images and those mm-hmm. people in their most vulnerable states. So what you have there is you don't only have a serious risk to the patients who are receiving the care, but you have another element which has recently been implemented into the Health Practitioner National Law, and that is the public interest test. Is it in the public interest to take action against this practitioner because what they have done compromises the public's confidence in the profession? Do Mm -hmm. we want somebody who is facing criminal charges to be able to be in a position of trust and be able to provide care to patients at their most vulnerable state. Mm. Is that what you want for your family? So that's if you were using your position as a nurse to behave in a criminal way. Sure. Outside of practice, if you are charged for conduct or for a criminal matter, for instance, there's a, a recent matter at the end of last year about a nurse who was charged and convicted after taking marijuana and tobacco to her son in prison. Now, that had nothing to do with her practice as a nurse, mm, mm. but she was charged with those offences and that ran through the ARPA and tribunal process because her conduct stepped so far away from what was expected of her as a professional, Mm -hmm. that that met the threshold for professional misconduct. Mm -hmm. So don't for a minute think that your behaviour and the way that you conduct yourself outside of practice will not impact on whether or not you retain that standing as a professional, as, you know, a registered health practitioner, because it does. 
And I think we are seeing a lot more domestic violence charges come through. And I think it is imperative that people understand if that's a charge that you have against you, it's not only that you're bringing the profession into disrepute. If you were an individual who was a victim of domestic violence and you were being cared for by somebody who had been charged with domestic violence, what impact would that have on you? Can you honestly say that that person can have the qualities of an individual mm. to be able to empathise and to be able to treat that person the way that they should mm. expect to be treated or the way that they deserve to be treated? If those charges are in existence, you have to think about what that patient might expect. Yeah. I think just touching on the subject of domestic violence, over the last few years in Australia, it's been fairly high profile. And so there's been a number of, I guess, legislative amendments, right, which are, which mm. are allowing for, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, an upswing in, in charges relating to domestic violence right. across the country. Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and obviously, this is not uh, specifically nursing related, nursing is a huge workforce, but certainly I was reading about professional workforces, right? Because mm. we now know that the face of domestic violence is not what you think it might be. It does affect all facets of society, all socioeconomic demographics, et cetera. So I, I guess what potentially does it look like now? Or what, what is that happening? Because it's a it's a whole other conundrum, but mm. it's effectively removing people from professions that there's a workforce shortage already, I guess. Well, that's right. And I don't think that can be underestimated either because we're in a situation where every nurse is absolutely 100% valuable at the minute and that mm. may affect different outcomes. Ultimately, the decision has to be about what meets the public confidence, what is a risk to the patient and what's the family member test. Mm -hmm. Do you want that person looking after your family member? It Best goes back to that heart. question of reasonability. You're exactly. a reasonable person, a reasonable person likely would have Are you yeah. able to exercise that judgment? And and it is tricky, it really is. But I think we have to maintain those standards, Matthew. If we say, well, okay, there's a pandemic on, so it's a free-for-all, where do we draw the line? Where do we then say, okay, we've had enough of you, off you go? Yeah. This unfortunate case in the US, that is extraordinary. And it would be a shame, obviously, for us all to think, Every day we go to work and be afraid that that might come knocking. Mm. But the fact is, I think the capacity has always been there. It's just not something that has risen to prevalence here in Australia. We probably don't have such a litigious society. I think the coroner's, you know, aspects on things obviously are the, they're the defining decision. But I think this is an example of where Unfortunately, we all have to have a very good hard look at ourselves mm. and say, what, what is it that we're doing and how are we protecting ourselves and our patients? Thank you. I think I might leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us. It's really fascinating, actually. And I'm first one to admit I haven't fully understood, I guess, the legal landscape or the implications of practice until recent years. And th these are questions people ask, you know, I think it's reasonable to be alarmed. So it's really good to have somebody who's in that space to come in and provide some reassurance, but an alternative perspective. Yeah. So thank you so much. Oh, yes. Yeah, so very welcome. It's so important that we all understand what it is that is behind every action that's taken. And it really is about being accountable for your practice. Are you a nurse working in primary healthcare and looking for the next step in your career? Or do you work in a hospital 
and curious about moving into a primary healthcare setting like general practice, aged care or school nursing, check out the APNA Nursing Jobs page, powered by Healthcare Link, where you can search jobs near you and filter by setting and speciality. To get to the APNA Nursing Jobs page, click the link in the show notes of this episode. Next time on Nursing Australia, this September issue will bring you an amazing nurse story of a rural and remote nurse practitioner, plus child safety, a must-listen for all health practitioners out there. It drops on Monday, September 5, and is available on all your favourite podcast listening apps. Remember, if you are listening to Nursing Australia right now on Apple or Google Podcasts, please don't forget to tap the subscribe button, and on Spotify, click to follow and share. The more followers, more shares the more nurses and healthcare professionals can access the latest happenings in Australian primary healthcare from right across the globe. I'm Matthew St. Ledger. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks once again, as always, for joining us here on Nursing Australia. Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia.